0: If you saw a UFO, how would you react? Would you approach it? Would you watch in silent awe? Would you try to take a picture? Would you flee in terror? Would it depend on where in the world you actually lived? In America and Europe, the UFO phenomenon is famously benign, at least for humans. One must search hard for cases, like that of Betty Cash where the experiencer is left with negative physical effects. But the same cannot be said for Brazil. In Brazil, to be in the presence of a UFO is to be in physical or even mortal danger. Brazil, a vast country both in overall area and in population, is home to much of the Amazon rainforest, a dense, mysterious place that does not easily give up its secrets to outsiders. Long thought to be a pristine wilderness, historians, archaeologists, and anthropologists are coming to understand that the people of the Amazon rainforest have a longer and richer history than commonly known. In a country steeped in this kind of hidden history, it should come as no surprise that there is also a rich tradition of UFO sightings in Brazil, so much so that they have a colloquial name for a UFO, the Chupa which literally translates to sucker, as in bloodsucker. And from the same root, we get the Spanish chupacabra, literally goat sucker, from the Spanish chupar, to suck, and cabra, goat. At face value, referring to a UFO as a sucker would seem like an odd choice, at least until one understands that there are persistent stories going back decades of UFOs quite literally sucking the blood out of unsuspecting victims. In the last episode, we heard the story of Antonio Villas-Boas, and the time he made sweet, sweet boom-boom with an alien. While it was undoubtedly a unique experience for Antonio, aside from the early date on which it occurred, in the overall chronology of the UFO phenomenon, his description of extremely cringy sex is not unusual from many found in later contactee literature. <sighs> Regardless, for many, the V.S. Boas abduction is a gateway into Brazilian ufology. Relatively well known outside Brazil as one of the first abduction encounters, it serves as a starting point to explore the unknown territory of Brazilian ufology. As we explore further, we come next to the Calares Flap. A sustained period of UFO activity that occurred in northern Brazil, near the mouth of the Amazon River, in the state of Pará, and centered around the town of Calares. For more than a year, the people in and around Calares saw mysterious objects flying through the sky on an almost daily basis. But unlike so many western UFO sightings, these so called chupas harassed, stalked, assaulted, and occasionally killed those unlucky enough to draw their attention. In response, Brazil's military government sent a team led by Captain Euring Hollanda to investigate. This months-long investigation, dubbed Operacao Prato, literally Operation Plate by Captain Hollanda, a subtle nod to the fact that they were investigating flying saucers, would produce thousands of pages of documentation as well as capture hundreds of hours of video and thousands of photographs of the Chupas. In the end, they would come no closer to discovering their purpose, like the various investigators who looked into the case. It is primarily through their efforts, and in particular the efforts of Captain Holanda in the decades after the flap, that we know so much about these enigmatic encounters. Like the region in which this takes place, The Kolaris Flap is vast, and to cover it all would be impossible. As with any journey of exploration, we must attempt to glimpse the whole by looking at just a part. Our journey will, by turns, move both too slow and too fast, and will often go in unexpected directions as we look at just some of the individual encounters that make up the flap. And so, just a short distance down the coast from the mouth of the mighty Amazon River we begin our journey into what would become known as the Calares Flap. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is Episode 6 of the Our Strange Skies Podcast. Our story begins on the evening of August 21st, 1977 in Santo Antonio do Taua, 26 miles southeast of Colares. Nina Martins da Silva was alone in her house when she happened to look out the window. It was there she saw what the locals refer to as a chupa, a four to five foot diameter luminescent object variously described as rectangular or cone-shaped moving slowly and silently across the evening sky. Though chupas come in many different colors, this one was a bright yellow color, bordering on red, and it was moving from east to west. Though we begin our exploration of the Calares flap with this short encounter, this was not the first time Nina had seen lights in the sky. Sporadic sightings like this had been occurring since the previous year, but shortly after this incident, Sightings like Nina's would become a disquietingly common part of daily life around Colares. Nina's account is a fascinating glimpse into how universal some aspects of the UFO phenomena can be. Her account would not be out of place in America or Europe, and could have occurred in any decade from the 1950s to the present day. The report does not include what Nina thought of the sighting, what she thought it might be, whether she wishes she saw more, or whether she wishes she never saw anything. It is here, on relatively familiar terrain, that we base our exploration. Despite the wide variation in individual accounts, this early report offers an example of what might be called a typical encounter for those who were lucky enough to simply see a Chupa, and not have it take an interest in them in return. As with Nina's sighting, in many, if not most of the encounters with the Chupas, the Chupas took no notice of the people, instead proceeding on their inscrutable mission, seemingly oblivious to anyone watching below. Though the locals were likely to regard them with fear, not every encounter with the Chupa was negative, even when the Chupa directly interacted with them. And some, like Amelia and Odette martins Silva would even describe their experience as positive. On the evening of September 2nd, mother and daughter Amelia and Odette Martins de Silva were walking home down a rural road about a mile outside of San Antonio de Taua when they both saw a bright reddish-yellow light in the sky. Initially, the light was moving at an angle to the road, but after a couple of seconds, it abruptly changed direction, and began moving directly towards Amelia and Odette. The women ran into the trees on the side of the road and took shelter in the roots of a large tree. As they hid, the object then stopped and remained motionless. From the safety of the trees, they were able to observe the object closely. The whole of it was not luminescent, as they first thought. Instead, they could clearly see that it was an inverted plate, with the light coming from a distinctly blue protuberance emerging from the underside of the object. It hovered silently over the road as Amelia and Odette watched it from the trees, shining a light from the protuberance on the ground until, after several minutes, the object resumed its initial course and disappeared from view. Reflecting on the experience much later, Amelia remarked that she felt no sense of fear during the encounter. She described the object as beautiful, and stated that she was happy to have seen it. However, as the flap intensified, these positive encounters would be few and far between. For our next encounter, we must take an unexpected turn, and at least for now, move away from Calares, and away from the coast, to Santo Antonio do Umbentuba approximately 14 miles south of Santo Antonio de Tau, in the opposite direction from Calares. It is here that, on September 10th, the flap would take a decidedly negative turn. Just after sunset, Beatriz Almada da Costa was in her house with her children when suddenly a bright reddish light began flooding into the house through her roof. She immediately felt chills run throughout her body, and she began to shake. As she shook, Beatrice felt control of her body slipping away from her. With a great degree of effort, she was able to scream for help. Her sister, who lived nearby, heard her scream and rushed to Beatrice's house, but by the time she arrived, the light and whatever was shining it had already departed. Neither Beatrice nor her children ever saw the source of the debilitating light. Afterwards, Beatrice reported that she had pain in her upper back, but was otherwise fine. She and her children then, as hard as it may be to do, tried to forget the encounter and get on with their evening. However, like many others who had an encounter with the Chupa, this would be but the first of many harrowing experiences that she would have, For many, days or even weeks could go by between their encounters, but Beatrice would only have to wait hours. Just before dawn the very next day, the light would return, and after an equally short period of time, depart, with no object seen emitting the light this time either. As September turned to October, encounters like that of Beatrice were becoming a daily fact of life in and around the area of Calares. The hardy folk who lived in and around the area were familiar with the dangers of everyday life in such a harsh environment. But even that could not prepare them for a danger which could descend from the sky and strike at any moment, even when they were in the safety of their own homes a distinct fear was beginning to settle in, one born of that most primal of fears, the fear of the unknown. To protect themselves, the folks in and around Kolaris did what humans have done since time immemorial. They banded together. Group watches and patrols were organized to watch the skies. Some residents set off fireworks at random intervals. Local officials petitioned the central government for assistance. Some... Like Manuel Matos de Souza, took to more direct measures. On the night of October 12th, Manuel was walking alone down a rural road when he saw a bright blue chupa hovering approximately 65 feet off the ground. The chupa was lighting up everything around it, but through the bright light, Manuel could see that it was round and had three vertical black stripes. Fearing for his safety, Manuel pulled out his gun and aimed it directly at the Chupa. Before he could fire, Manuel was hit by a ray of red light, which he later described as feeling like electricity coursing through his body. He was completely paralyzed and unable to fire his gun, and though he was shaken by his encounter, Manuel reported no lingering effects after the Chupa departed. It isn't known whether or not Manuel had any further encounters with the Chupas, though no other instances are documented. Perhaps his aggression was precisely what was needed to prevent further encounters. Perhaps he was lucky that whatever force that controls the Chupas did not kill him on the spot. And so, as we go deeper into the mystery of the Calaris Flap, we must acknowledge uncertainty of our own. Our exploration of the mystery has, so far, demonstrated an intelligent force behind the Chupas. One which is, at a minimum, willing to tolerate harm to people in pursuit of its own ends. Yet, we do not seem to be any closer to understanding those goals than we were at the start of this exploration. Just who or what controls the Chupas themselves is at the heart of the mystery. But up to this point we do not have a single report of an occupant of a chupa, though it must be stated that many would appear to be too small to contain any kind of violet. However, that would change on the same night that Manuel would have his ill-considered attempt to shoot a chupa. That same night, Manuel do Espirito Santo was with some friends in front of his house when he saw what he thought was a reddish-yellow star After a moment, the chupa began descending toward them at a fast speed, becoming more yellow as it approached. The chupa slowed as it came closer and stopped approximately 65 feet away from the group. From this close view, Manuel could see a bluish light coming from the top of the front of the chupa, which he could now see was cylindrical, with a thin reddish tube and another bluish tube that emitted a ray of blue light. Though the object was only four to five feet wide, Manuel could see two human figures, a man and a woman, both wearing some kind of glasses and earphones. The male figure was watching the group intently, while the female was busy with something else. After a moment, the female figure aimed a horizontal tube at Manuel, and he was hit by a ray of red light. Manuel described the feeling as being like that of an electric shock. It immobilized his arms and legs, and he felt himself begin to lose consciousness. Before his friends could react, the object began moving away slowly, gaining both speed and altitude in that strange falling leaf, but in reverse motion. As it departed, Manuel was again able to move, though he did report a feeling of numbness for several minutes afterward. In our exploration of the Kolaris Flap, we cannot help but search for patterns. This search to put order over chaos is basic human nature. However, the Calaris Flap stubbornly defies being put into order. Manuel's encounter, like so many, features so much in common with other sightings, but then include new or different elements, as Manuel's did when he was the first person documented to have seen an inhabitant of a Chupa. In the decades since the Kolaris Flap, researchers have attempted to find some pattern and have included a dizzying array of variables in their search. From times, to locations, to the shape of the chupa, to the color of the light it emits, to the color of the beams they shoot, to the people that they choose to interact with or choose to ignore, and many others. No pattern has yet to emerge. This maddening randomness is well illustrated by Beatriz Almada da Costa. She has already had two separate encounters with Chupas, or at least with the light shining into her house that matches the description of one shot out by a Chupas. But despite having two encounters in less than 24 hours on September 10th and 11th, she did not have another encounter until October 13th. On this day, she was walking along a road when she was struck by the same kind of beam that hit her home. The effect was the same. A chill went through her entire body as she started shaking and losing control of it, only to have the beam disappear just as abruptly, leaving her partially paralyzed by the side of the road. Up to this point, all of the encounters have occurred in the rural areas around Calares and not in Calares itself. Though the residents of the countryside uniformly reported that the Chupas always came from the west and departed to the east, in the direction of both Calares and the estuary of the Pata River, part of the Amazon Delta which connects directly with the Atlantic Ocean. This pattern, however, would change on the same night as Beatrice's most recent encounter, and so our exploration of the Calaris flap comes at last to the town of Calaris itself, and to the waterfront home of Father Alfredo de Lau, a Roman Catholic priest. In the early morning hours of October 13th, Father de Lau was awakened by the barking of several neighborhood dogs. When he looked outside, he saw just 250 feet away from him a cylindrical chupa only 65 feet above the bay emitting a strong reddish light on top and a bluish light on the bottom which Father Delau could see reflected on the water unlike previous encounters the chupa that he saw was moving at great speed faster than a jet plane according to Father Delau, and yet still completely silent up to this sighting the movement of the chupas had been, for lack of a better term, quite ordinary. They moved mostly in straight lines, and while eerily silent, not unlike the kind of maneuvers that a helicopter would perform. That would change the day after Father de sighting. In the early morning hours of October 14th, Benedito Ferreira de Figueredo observed an intense blue light 100 feet above the nearby treetops, it was too high for him to see any kind of size or shape, but as it gained altitude, it moved in an odd way, like that of a falling leaf, only in reverse. As the heart of the sightings moved out of the countryside and into Colaris itself, this new feature of the sightings began to be reported. Whether this had been occurring before, but the heavily forested environment of the countryside around Calaris prevented it from being seen, or whether this is entirely new cannot, as with so much about this flap, be known with any kind of certainty. However, as we now move out of the forest and onto the vast expanse of Marajo Bay, where the Para River empties into the Atlantic, this description will become more common, though it by no means accompanies every sighting. Having just reached our seeming destination in Calares, we are again going to take a detour, this time upriver from Calares to Bellum, the capital and largest city in the state of Para. While we have been exploring the phenomenon downriver, persistent encounters have been occurring in and around Bellum as well, which were documented by Brazilian ufologist Daniel Rabiso Giés, and matched the kinds of encounters described previously. In his exploration of the phenomenon, he came to understand that the epicenter was further north, in Calares, and so from his local contacts, he was put in touch with Dr. Walade Sisum Carvalho de Oliveira, the head of a clinic in Calares, who treated many victims of the chupas. It is also from Dr. Carvalho that we have our first report of a death directly associated with a chupa, at least from this particular flap. This deadly encounter was reported to Gies by Dr. Carvalho, who kept the victim's name and date of death private, but which was verified by Gies. When Dr. Carvalho opened her clinic at 7.30 a.m., she found a woman waiting for her who reported that, early that morning, a chupa had struck her with a beam of light. Upon examination, Dr. Carvalho found a severe reddening of the skin on her left breast Inside of which were two apparent puncture marks. She reported weakness, dizziness, and trouble breathing. Believing that the patient would recover with time, Dr. Carvalho gave her a prescription and told her to rest at home. Three hours later, Dr. Carvalho was called to the woman's home, where she was found in a deep coma and struggling to breathe. She was transported with Dr. Carvalho to the hospital in Bellum, where after several hours she was pronounced dead, with heart failure listed as the official cause of death, which Dr. Carvalho forcefully disagreed with. Beyond treating those who had been harmed during their encounters, Dr. Carvalho herself would have an encounter with a chupa on the late afternoon of October 16th, right at the clinic where she had treated so many patients affected by the chupas. From one to two miles away, she observed a bright, conical, cylindrical metal object spinning over the beach at an altitude of approximately 330 feet. She believed the object to be approximately 10 feet long and 6.5 feet wide, She also described the now familiar falling leaf and reverse motion of the craft, saying that it used a wavy or rocking motion, which seemingly made frequent stops and turns as it gained height. Dr. Carvalho would go on, in the decades after the flap, to speak publicly about her experience, as well as those of her patients, including claims that she was ordered by the military to downplay the amount of activity associated with the flap and to ascribe what was occurring to mass hysteria, even though she personally believed that it wasn't true. It is here, months into the flap, and with the area in a state of panic, with sightings of daily occurrence, that we are joined in our exploration of the flap by a military team, led by Captain, later Colonel Ureng Holanda, and organized under the name Upper Cal Prato or Operation Plate, the tongue-in-cheek name chosen by Captain Holanda. This is where we will end Part 1 in the series. Come back in two weeks for the conclusion to our look into the Klara's Flap. And if you're a Patreon member, you'll have that next episode next Friday. This episode was written and researched by the OSIC's lead researcher, Rory, and was recorded by me. If you'd like to find out more information about the show, including links to show notes, merchandise, our Patreon, and our blog, head on over to our new website, ourstrangesquies.com. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions, and our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or over the town of Calares. in gray we trust